Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. This week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast is brought to you by our newest sponsor, Organic Tan Lethbridge. You can try their at-home self-tanning products made from a blend of organic and natural ingredients for 15% off by using promo code RuralWoman15. Head on over to organictanlethbridge.ca slash shop to browse and purchase from their wide selection of at-home products. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. On this week's episode, you'll meet fashionista turned first-generation farmer, Star Hairoff. Star worked in the clothing and fashion industry for many years before she jumped into farming where she began raising blue-faced lesser sheep. Star says there has always been three key elements woven through her life, the love of animals, holistic patterns, and clothing. Star has taken all three of those elements and turned them into the idea of producing carbon-beneficial wool to produce her own garments from her sheep's beautiful wool. Before we get to today's episode, I want to give a big shout out and say hello to our newest patrons of the Rural Woman podcast, Jamie and Kim. Thank you both so much for your support of the show. Your financial support along with the other patrons helps spread the stories of women in agriculture the world around, and I really sure do appreciate it. We are up to 21 wonderful patrons over in the patron gang, which I affectionately call them. And I got an idea the other day while I was disking the field that I wanted to put out there. So I have a big birthday coming up and I know you guys have all been wondering what you could get me. So what I want for my birthday is to have as many patrons as my age. So currently we're at 21, so we'll need to add another nine by July the 6th. That's right, I'm going to be 30 years old and I am very excited for it. (laughs) So if you're interested in becoming a patron of the Rural Woman podcast, you can head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. There are some great perks of becoming a patron. Not only do you support spreading the goodness of women in agriculture, but You also get some behind the scenes and exclusive content. Plus, there's always giveaways and more. So memberships start as low as $2 a month. And guys, I don't think you can get all of this goodness for $2 a month anywhere else. So thank you guys so much for considering supporting my birthday patron goal. (laughs) And without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Star. Hi, Star. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am doing so good. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rural Woman podcast today. Oh, and thank you for having me. I am excited to talk to you again. This time it's not face-to-face, but over the phone is good too. (laughs) Yeah. Star and I, for the listeners who don't know, Star and I were able to meet face-to-face at the Camrose Organic Alberta Holistic Management Conference back in... February it was already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great to meet you face-to-face. I always love catching up again or chatting with people that I've had these interpersonal conversations with. So for the, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, for the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, 
give the audience a bit of your background of who you are and where you're from. So some people might not know this, but I was actually born in Madison, Wisconsin, but I actually grew up in North Vancouver, British Columbia, and um, made a stop in Oregon en route to uh, Canada. I have a small hobby farm here. I spent the better part of 20 years working as an outerwear designer, designing high-end outdoor apparel. And um, yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. That's a good start. But I know you have more to say because I've read your bio and you have a very interesting life. So <laughs> tell, us, tell us how you got your start in agriculture. So it was the 70s and my mom and my stepdad were motivated by the back to the earth movement, I guess they call it now. But for us, it was just, you know, packing up, leaving Wisconsin in a panel van and uh, driving to Oregon with ham radios, I think there may have been. Anyways, lots of cheese sandwiches. And uh, yeah, we, my parents built a house, a small house. And we raised some goats, drank our own goat's milk, had a garden. Anyway, it was a pretty wonderful experience. It was an amazing place to be a kid, you know. I wandered our property with uh, a small shovel, a roll of toilet paper, and just, you know, explored. <laughs> well, that does sound like a back-to-earth experience, back-to-mother <laughs> back nature, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So... How long were you on this farm for with your family? Not very long, unfortunately. You know, my mom was actually one of the first female programmers to work for IBM. And uh, she's very much into the computer era. And um, my stepdad was uh, an electronics engineer. So he worked for Hewlett Packard. And anyway, they were computer nerds. But uh, yeah, so the farm thing didn't, didn't really work out that well. But I loved it. So we were only there for, I think, two years. So did you always know that you wanted to go back to the farm eventually one day? Yeah, it called to me quietly, you know, for sure. There was this rumbling. I mean, I never let go of having animals in my life. I had every rodent. You know, we took our rabbits from the farm, and then it was guinea pigs, and then it was hamsters and gerbils, and, you know, and then I went back to rabbits and bred rabbits. And, you know, I just always had little pets on the go. But I also was sewing, right? You know, my mom and my grandmother were seamstresses, and so I got my first sewing machine when I was eight. And, yeah, so those were sort of the two themes that were intertwined. And did I know for sure that I was going to go back to the farm? No, I mean, it definitely... It definitely sort of came up somewhere in my subconscious, for sure. You know, and I toyed with being a vet and things like that. I, You know, I was really discouraged. The idea of trying to become a farmer was pretty, pretty intimidating. Yeah, for sure. Well, just the overall knowledge that a farmer has, plus the amount of capital that it takes to become a farmer in 2020 now. Like, I don't know how anybody would do it now, but even back then, like, it's a daunting thought to start this whole thing by yourself. Yeah, and, you know, in that, in my early lifetime, you know, there really wasn't, the interest that's in farming right now and sort of the encouragement and, and people really sort of getting behind it again is pretty recent, right? And um, when I was choosing my career, people are like, why would you do that? <laughs> you know? So. Exactly. Well, let's talk more about what your career was off of your farm. 
Yeah, so I sort of bounced around. I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. I, um, like I said, I toyed with the idea of being a vet. I also, I was interested in being an architect. Anyway, then I, my mom really pushed me to get a university education, and um, that was a really high priority for her. And I started working in my free time. I volunteered for a couple of designers in Vancouver so that I could get free clothes. <laughs> and so I'd go and sew for them or cut stuff out or whatever and get clothes while I was still working on my academic career. And then I, th- I was watching like fashion television, right, with Jeannie Becker. <laughs> and, you know, this brand called Comregs was on there. And they're like, you know, it flashes up that they went to Ryerson. And this is back in the day where, you know, I had just gotten an email address at the university and we still had paper catalogs for universities. So I'm like, okay, so I'm going to go to the library. What's this Ryerson thing? So I go and I look it up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can get a degree, like a bachelor's degree in fashion. <laughs> I'm like, that's amazing. So I, uh, yeah, within, you know, I put together a portfolio. I you know, and booked an interview, went out there. It was a total cattle call. I thought there was no way I got in. I was so shocked when I got the acceptance letter, you know, because then, back then, you had to wait for it to come by mail, like, months later. So, yeah, so, and then I moved to Toronto and was off to that. And, um, unfortunately, it wasn't quite what I had expected it to be. I was a bit disenchanted by maybe some of the interpersonal experiences I had and wasn't so sure that it um, was what I had cracked it up to be. I mean, I loved making clothes and I I loved just the creative side of it, but um, the business side and, and the sort of um, event organization side, people would get so stressed and it was fairly unpleasant. So, yeah, I, I was racing mountain bikes at the time. I was always super athletic. And so I started making my own bike clothes because the bike clothes back then, it was like spandex, spandex, more spandex. And of course, none for women. And um, yeah, so I started making my own bike clothes, working at the bike shop. And that kind of led me to working in outdoor, I guess. And which brand did you work for, for the outdoor clothing? (laughs) So this is pretty funny. So when I moved, so since I graduated from Ryerson, I couldn't get back to Vancouver fast enough, right? Being an outdoor kid, I just, I just wanted to come home. And so I came home, and I was living on the North Shore, riding my bike all the time, and uh, working for a big fa- big fashion. I mean, I wouldn't really call them fashion as sportswear commodity. We're making, you know, plastic, or um, elastic pull-on pants for Correct Canada. But anyway, working for a big company, and, um, and then a friend of mine is like, oh, have you heard of this little company they make some pretty nice backpacks, and, you know, they're right here in North End. And I'm like, no, like, what is this thing? And they're like, yeah, I think it's called Arcteryx. <laughs> so, so I, like, you know, look it up. I don't even know. Did I, would I have Googled it back then? Maybe. I guess so, late 90s. So I looked it up, and I got the phone number, and I cold called them. And thankfully, it was a small enough company at that time <laughs> that my call went through. <laughs> And um, I talked to the design manager, and she's like, actually, we're about ready to launch apparel, and we really need somebody like you. So I went for an interview, and like four months later, I got a job there, and that was my first design job. That's awesome. So in total, then, how long did you work for in the fashion industry? So fashion, I really only worked in fashion while I was at, like, while I was going to school, because I always worked for Comregs. We're still there, 
the lovely Joyce and Judy. They're still in Toronto. So I worked there the whole time I was going to school, but then I really dove into outdoor pretty quick. And then I was in outdoor for about 18 years. I still do a little. I dabble a little bit, but not a lot. Yeah, so after I was at Art Terrace, I was only there for a couple of years. We launched apparel. It was super exciting. And then I got headhunted by, you know, a couple of big companies down the States. And, you know, and they dangled those kind of dollars. I was ready to, you know, spread my wings a little bit and trade my mountain bike in for a surfboard. <laughs> so I said, sure, I'll move to California. <laughs> And I went and worked for the North Face, and I was at the North Face on and off for the better part of a decade. And uh, I worked for Patagonia for a bit, and a bunch of other little stuff along the way. Very cool. So at what point in your career in the fashion industry did you decide that enough was enough, and you knew that you needed to head back to the farm? You know, I think the first thing that really drove me was having children. The experience that I had as a kid, although brief, was so fulfilling, you know, caring for our little goats and just being a part and connected to nature in that way. You know, I craved that and I craved that experience for my own children. And, you know, I got involved in Waldorf education pretty quickly because, you know, I was never an extreme, I, you know, I was never particularly extreme in my, my parenting views before having children, but I did just was naturally drawn to things that were simpler and more natural. So, you know, I remember, you know, as a, before children, I was like, I'm not going to use a pacifier. Why would I put some plastic in their mouth? <laughs> of course I did. But anyway, <laughs> um, but you know, like all these things that they jumped in and lit up and made all this noise. I was like, oh my gosh, that would make me crazy. <laughs> I don't know about them, but it make me crazy. Anyway, so I just was craving something different and that's how I got involved in Waldorf education, just not wanting them to be watching too much TV and just something that was a little bit more grounded in nature. And then that sort of then resurged, like when I went and did my teacher training for my Waldorf education, that really resurged that whole desire to grow. You know, I always had a garden and stuff like that, but to get deeper into growing my own food and producing my own food. And, um, you know, I got very interested while I was doing my while they're training in biodynamic farming. And, um, yeah, it just sort of evolved over time, you know. And, and um, I continued to work for, you know, outdoor for quite a while, and they sort of were in parallel. And it wasn't until we moved back to California again that we finally had acreage, and I had this plan to have these, you know, cashmere goats. And, um, anyway, I, thankfully I did some research about cashmere before I ended up buying goats. <laughs> but that was, that was sort of the beginning of it. So still working in outdoors. You know, my career, to be good at what I did, required, you know, unbelievable amounts of travel. Uh, you know, even with a newborn baby, I was a 1K, right? I was traveling over 100,000 miles a year. And, you know, I remember I'd get into first class, and uh, because not because anybody bought me first class, but because I had so many points, I'd upgrade myself. And, you know, I'd have this infant on my lap. I'd be, like, breastfeeding in first class, and all the guys are looking at me going, oh, my God. <laughs> How did she get in here? <laughs> but uh, anyway, my mom traveled all over the place with me so I could bring my child. But yeah, it was just, it really wore on me, all the travel and leaving my kids all the time to go to Asia. But if I wasn't in the factories, I didn't feel like I was really productive at my job. 
I mean, that was the piece of the design that I loved, right? It was actually making product, you know, just drawing pictures and sending it off and having somebody do your dirty work didn't appeal to me. I had to be, you know, making patterns and sitting down at a sewing machine. Otherwise, I didn't find it very gratifying. But, you know, that took its toll, right? So I just was, you know, trying to drive myself towards getting the kids into more natural rhythms and around animals. And it was a bit of a long process. And it wasn't until my husband took on a senior management role back up here at Arcteryx that I could finally sort of step back. And, um, you know, we didn't really need double income anymore. And I'm not one to sit still. I remember telling some of my design friends that I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, and they thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. So um, the farm seemed like the perfect thing because then I had the flexibility and I could, you know, be there when they needed me and, you know, be there when my husband was traveling around the world and yet have this other thing of my own. And through my design career, I had learned so early on that wool was the miracle fabric. I This is very ironic, but I used to wear some old sweaters when I was, so so I, when I was working at Arcteryx, I also managed all our external local contractors. So, you know, back then we had a lot of fleece stores and stuff like that here in Vancouver. And I drove an old hippie van and, you know, I was trying to be earthy. So I would ride my bike to the factory. <laughs> Made the president crazy. But anyway, yeah, so I'd ride my bike. And so I learned really quickly that by wearing my wool sweaters that I, I didn't smell so bad. <laughs> as I did when I was wearing all this synthetic stuff. So that was actually my first, like, oh, I love wool. <laughs> uh, anyway, so then, you know, wool started to trickle into outdoor, right? And I was wearing it, working with it at Patagonia, and then we brought more on at the North Face, and I just was blown away. I, there was no doubt in my mind that it was, the best thing out there, right? And that I was really tired of feeling sweaty in my synthetic fibers. So um, as much as, you know, Gore-Tex is a, you know, there's nothing like staying dry when it's really wet, especially here on the coast. But the minute you get moving, it uh, definitely has its limitations. So yeah, that was really it. Was That was where the wool piece came in. I I had taken up knitting again when I got pregnant and I was still traveling so much. Like, I'm not a huge reader. And what else do you do on a 13-hour flight? You knit. (laughs) So I was knitting a lot. And, um, yeah, so it all just sort of started to come together. And I loved the goats so much as a kid that I thought for sure I needed to have goats. But as I did my research, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to raise good quality cashmere in my climate on the West Coast. So then I looked at pagora goats, and I actually had some angora goats here for a while, but it all kept bringing me back to the fact that I love wool. And once I got my own sheep, I realized that I actually quite love the temperament of sheep. You know, I mean, sure, they're not as curious and destructive as as goats, (laughs) but you know, it's so funny. People are always like, oh, sheep are so stupid. <laughs> like, and I was like, oh, well, if they're dumb, I don't, I don't want sheep if they're dumb, but I love wool. So I got my sheep, even though I thought they might be dumb, but it turns out they're not dumb at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's just those people, sheep. You have the smart one. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Although, so 
I did my research when I chose my breed. I, you know, because I was so into the fiber, I had come across the blue face luster and, um, I'm not a big Merino fan for a couple of reasons. Now, I mean, I love Merino, and it has a beautiful place in this world. But for me, it wasn't the best choice, A, because I live in the wet, and B, because coming from my technical background, I know the fault of Merino. You know, Merino is a very short staple fiber, and so, you know, you put all this blood, sweat, and tears into making something either by hand or using manufacturing. And let's face it, it's not the most durable fiber, right? And I've had people argue with me that, Staple length has nothing to do with durability, but that to me is, you know, science. <laughs> Longer filament, then it's going to be more durable because you have less break. But anyway, so the tech nerd in me was drawn to the BFL because it is long, and yet of the long staple fibers, it's the finest and the silkiest. So that was sort of where I landed there. And also because it's a British sheep breed, they do well in the wet. And, yeah, so those are all the reasons. You know, and they can be fairly, like, mine are quite sweet, and some of mine are basically pets. But, uh, you know, I don't, um, yeah, anyway, I don't find them stupid at all. <laughs> but I did have somebody ask me once. They were like, why did someone your size choose such a large breed? <laughs> and I was like, uh, well, actually, that wasn't one of the things I could when I chose my breed. <laughs> How big do they typically get? Well, when I sent my uh, last lamb, or my last ram to to market, he weighed in, I think he hung at like 320. That is so, huge. But yeah, he, he was particularly big and particularly deadly. That is why he ended up there. I didn't, um, I didn't sell him because I didn't think it was uh, a very uh, ethical thing to do. He was quite aggressive. But, uh, yeah, my ewes are probably, like, hover around 220. Those are still pretty big. And I stood beside you. You are very small, but I am six feet tall, so <laughs> most people are smaller than I am. <laughs> yeah, I stretch in at a whopping five foot two. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's great. So, obviously, sheep were going to be a part of your farm because of your love of wool. So what are you doing with your sheep then? So obviously you're using their wool. Do you shear them yourself or do you have somebody come in and shear them for you? I have somebody come in. That's great. So then with your wool, are you producing yarn from the pelt? Yes. And it's interesting, you know, the shift working with these, you know, state-of-the-art Japanese mills making, you know, 10 denier nylon fibers. <laughs> to trying to produce a beautiful yarn that I was happy with, with my own wool, had took five years. Like, it wasn't, like, first of all, I have pretty limited flock. You know, I started with three fleeces. <laughs> and then you take these very loving little fleeces and you take them to somebody and, you know, it's like, it's like giving up. You know, I don't know. It was very difficult to part ways when them and handed over to this mill that you've never worked with before. And, of course, my first mill destroyed them, felted them, just made a total mess of them. So, yeah, it was a process to find. The other thing I didn't realize by selecting the Blue Face Luster, so most, most of the times we talk about wool, we talk about crimp, right? And that is, like, when you lay it on, when you lay it down on, um, you know, on the table or something, you can see that it has sort of like a little zigzag pattern, right? looks kind of like rickrack, and that we call crimp. But a blue-faced luster is actually more like alpaca, 
it has very little crimp and more curl. So, like, there's other breeds like that, like Wellsdale and other ones that have more of that lock structure. But what I didn't realize is that for, you know, your average small mill, I was basically handing them the most difficult wool they were ever going to process. I mean, one, it, that it's long. Lots of their carding equipment and stuff like that wasn't set up for long wool. <laughs> you know, two, that had these tight curls. You know, three, that it's very high in lanolin, so it's quite sticky and dirty. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then it was fine on top of that, right? So you had to handle it with care. So if I could take all the things that made processing wool challenging and difficult, yeah, I basically put them, you know, selected all of those in my <laughs> in my fiber. So, um, yeah, so it's taken me a while, but I have met wonderful and lovely, amazing people, and especially one that I'm working with right now, Nicole, up at Darn Yarn, that just makes the most stunning yarn out of my wool. And, you know, she says it's all my wool, but I'm like, no, 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 it's, <laughs> it's you that <laughs> makes beautiful, right, because you can ruin it easily. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I know. <laughs> You have, I have experienced this before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's the same with your shear, right? Like, I remember when I was getting married, and, you know, I designed my gown, and I picked my fabric and all that kind of stuff, but people are like, are you going to make it? I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm going to go to somebody that I know is really good at making wedding dresses, and that's not me. I can make the Gore-Tex jacket, but I'm not making the wedding dress. Like, sewing silk is hard. So, and it's sort of the same thing, right? Like, you want to work in your community with people that specialize in those things, and then they bring their gift and their talent, you know, and build on what you're building on. So, I feel very, you know, I have my ladies. They're all <laughs> my sheer Joe. She's she's a woman. And then Nicole. And they all, like... <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Girl power. Yeah, yeah. With lots of support. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> For sure, the, the men can come too, you know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't. As long as they, them. yeah, yeah we, as long as they carry something heavy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't talk to them on this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I have a confession. One of my most favorite ways to treat myself to some self care is with a spray tan from Organic Tan Lethbridge. I always leave there with instant gratification and healthy glowing skin that always feels so hydrated and luminous. Now, guys, I don't always get to go see my favorite ladies at Organic Tan Lethbridge for my custom spray tan experience. However, that doesn't mean I have to stop feeling like a bronzed goddess. Their at-home tan line, Color Me Dark, is amazing. This unique blend of organic and natural ingredients gives you the ability to give yourself the do-it-yourself glow that you desire. Formulated with natural ingredients, the Caramel Guide color gives an immediate glow and allows for perfectly even application. Color develops safely, gradually, and naturally. Color Me Dark can be used year-round, especially during the long, cold winter months when your skin needs a little bronze pick-me-up. But guys, we're not in that season right now. We're in farmer's tan season. And stop the presses. Their new Color Me Dark Express Tanning Mousse has helped me fix my farmer's tan. 
Seriously, this stuff is revolutionary. Check out the Color Me Dark line and all of the other amazing at-home products offered from Organic Tan Lethbridge at organictanlethbridge.ca slash shop and use promo code RURALWOMAN15 to save 15% off of your order. That's Organic Tan Lethbridge. I'll spell it out for you. L-E-T-H-B-R-I-D-G-E dot C-A slash shop and use RURALWOMAN15 to save 15% off your next order. And yes, my friends, south of the border, they can ship to you too. So obviously I met you at a holistic management and grazing conference. So not really about wool there, but you are actually interested or were interested when you started the sheep about carbon beneficial wool. So Mm -hmm. tell us, you tell us more about that and what that means and what was appealing to you about carbon beneficial wool? Well, so there's two pieces, right? I mean, there's the regenerative grazing part, which I think, uh, you know, other people that you've had on can speak too much better than I can. <laughs> um, but, you know, basically the idea that, that, that grazing the grasslands is beneficial and that, um, you know, they're we're sequestering carbon just through the, the, the roots and then keeping some of the, the um, organic matter on the soil. Um, and then, of course, the roots hold the water and all those beautiful things. Um, and then, of course, the sheep are fertilizing it and breaking down all those wonderful nutrients and making them available. So there's that piece. But the other piece that's specific to wool is that um, wool is 50% carbon, right? So not only are you sequestering carbon through um, holistic uh, grazing and and proper grazing management, but also the fiber itself. Um, you know, so and it's so you're sequestering it, and then also if you're um, composting any of it, you know, it makes a wonderful compost too. So that's very cool. I didn't know that about wool being fifty percent carbon. So you taught mm-hmm. me something today. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, and which is great. I mean, I it's. I'm just at the beginning of this process of the regenerative side. I knew, you know, I wasn't sure what I was trying to do. Everybody's like, I only have three and a half acres here, right? So this is just sort of the beginning of my with my journey. And um, I know it's a cliche term, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, and so I wasn't sure what I was trying to accomplish. People are like, why? Like, you know, in the ag community, people are like, yeah, sheep, no problem. But you have to understand, in my fashion world and even in my outdoor world, when I told people I was getting sheep, they were like, what? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, what do you know about farming? Like, what, what, what do you, like, did you take a class or something? Like, why? Like, because people that didn't know me well hadn't, hadn't heard me talk about it. You know, they didn't know that, that this was this deep-seated interest of mine. I mean, people that knew me well have always heard these little... I'm going to have a goat dairy. No, I'm going to have, <laughs> you know, these little fantasy projects. But, um, but yeah, people were shocked, right? And um, so I'm still at very much at the beginning of this process. And, and when I started, I didn't really know what I was trying to do. I'm like, I know I can't produce enough wool on three and a half acres to have my own line of sweaters. You know, no, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, what is my purpose and the point of it all and honestly it wasn't until I learned about the holistic grazing and Nicole Masters that it all started to come together for me because you know I I met Rebecca Burgess when I was living in California and I got to 
to um, visit some neat farms there, and I thought, this is so cool, but this, how on scale, like, I'm not doing this. Like, what, how is what I'm doing relevant? And, um, you know, it, and, and it wasn't until, um, you know, I wanted to produce as much wool as I could on, my, on a hill, and I have very little soil, so my pasture is not great. And the biggest carbon footprint of what I'm doing is bringing hay onto Bowen. Right, I live on this little island, and I cart all this hay from the interior, you know. And I'm like, huh, yeah, this is not carbon beneficial. <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't think that this is, you know, this isn't quite um, my purpose. And so, I the reason why I got into the regenerative piece is because, um, and ended up, you know, going to the conference and stuff like that, was because I looked at my pasture and I thought, you know what, I I got to be able to produce more food for my sheep here. Like, it's got to be possible. What am, What do I need to know? I'm like, I don't know anything about sowing grass <laughs> seeds. I don't know anything, you know. I, so, so I just start showing up to these things. I go myself, and I I know I'm like <laughs> a sore thumb, and I'm just like trying to absorb all this information. I'm like the total, you know, hobby farm city kid trying to learn about, like, what kind of grass should I be trying to grow and what time of year do I seed that? And, you know, I, I'm very green on this, but I, um, but it, it's like my purpose. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this, this is all making sense to me. I can improve my pasture. And this is, yeah, anyway, it, it's all, like, all the bells are starting to ring for me, like, I'm understanding why I'm doing this. <laughs> so yeah. exciting. That's awesome. And so yeah. through your, obviously it's still very new, but through the small changes that you've made already in the holistic approach to farming, what changes or improvements have you seen for taking care of your land and animals? Um, well, I had a... Um, you know, when people come, they're surprised at how healthy my animals look, which I regard with, you know, a lot of humility and, and, um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, you know, it makes me feel good because, you know, they, I've been told that based on what I have here for land, that my animals look good. <laughs> you know, like I'm working against the curve here. So, <laughs> um, so in terms of improvements, um, I don't believe the people that farmed here before were um, using a lot of pesticides. So I'm lucky in that I think we were pretty much uh, fairly organic to begin with. Um, you know, my animal health is good. Um, my worm load is low. You know, here on the West, that's a constant battle, especially with small pasture. Um, yeah, I think that it's just in the health of my animals. Um, I... Yeah, I think. I mean, really, the things that I've applied so far are the strip grazing, you know, so having more concentrated grazing areas and then moving them more often. Um, and that seems to be to be working well. I'm, I'm really excited about seeing it over time, right? I'm, like I said, the things that I've applied are still pretty recent. So. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm so excited to follow you on your journey and to see where you take this whole new holistic management approach on your land. It's very cool. And I love yeah. that. Like, I love that you're doing this on three and a half acres because <laughs> I, 
honestly, because I think people look at this and they're like, oh, unless I have all of this land, like it doesn't make a difference. But it does. It totally does just on the small piece that you'll have. So that's very cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm producing so much um I mean, the benefit of of having my hay brought on is that I'm I don't need to apply any additional nutrients because you know I'm I'm applying so much new vegetable matter. So I'm building soil. I, although I don't like the fact that I'm bringing all the hay on and I want to reduce that, it, it's a good thing, right? Like because then I'm composting it and they're pooping and I'm building soil on top of rock because. You know, Bowen Island, all of these little islands out here, for the most part, were rock. And so, although it's not great to be bringing the grass, to be bringing the hay, it's actually, you know, I'm still um, adding all this vegetation and, and um, compost back onto the soil. So, over time, I'm, it's definitely improving, as opposed to just feeding them and then losing it. You know, I am keeping it here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Very good. So, yeah. What are your future plans for Morningstar Woolen Farm? So the biggest thing right now is that I have hoarded enough wool that I can actually go to market. And um, I have developed five patterns. I've met another wonderful woman, uh, Susan, that is um, actually making uh, commercial patterns out of my chicken scratch. <laughs> so I knit... Um, I knit from scratch and or maybe based off something loosely, um, but most of what I do is from scratch. And then I don't take very good notes. I am a cloud of creative chaos. And um, so I don't take very good notes. And then I have to go back and look at it and try and figure out what it was exactly I did. So anyway, so this wonderful woman, Susan, is um, deciphering that and actually helping me publish commercial patterns. So um, I'm taking like five different styles and um, and then that are specifically designed to my um, wool, then selling that as a kit. That is very cool. And that is how I fell in love with you at the conference. When you told me all of these things, I was like, that is the coolest thing I have ever heard. <laughs> you are taking Thank it you. From, you're taking it from the sheep all the way to like commercial clothing, which is just so cool. And I just love that. So where... So would this be for sale for the general public or are you selling this to clothing buyers? Like how does this work? It'll be for sale to the general public and it'll be a combination of two uh, two things. One will be in the kit form and one will be in the finished sweater form. Um, I was very inspired by um, Natalie Channon of Alabama Channon and she does, you know, her hand sewn organic cotton garments like it's grown in the States and they all sewn down the States in Alabama. Um, she sells them as finished garments, which are thousands of dollars. And then she sells them as the DIY kit, you know, so that for a few hundred dollars, still expensive, but worth it, um, you can go buy her kit and you can sew it yourself, right? And so I thought that is so beautiful, right? Because I struggle bringing something to life although it's just a reflection of what it costs to produce that garment here at our local economy, I still struggle provide, taking something to market that's exclusively for people that are affluent, right? And um, so I love the kit idea in that. And also because I'm a handwork teacher and really think that we should all be knitting <laughs> for our mental health, 
Um, um, you know, I love to encourage and inspire people to make beautiful things with their hands. So there's that piece. Or if, you know, if that's just not for you, maybe you get your, you know, grounding through something else. Um, lots of yoga, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, then to be available to, to, um, to buy his finished garments as well. That's amazing. So cool. I'll have to learn how to knit. <laughs> <laughs> I can teach you. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I'll be your sidekick. I'll, I'll knit the sweaters for other people. I'm sure they won't want mine. They'll probably want yours. But <laughs> I, you know, I love knitting, but I'm not like, I'm not the best knitter. I was so cute. Somebody near and dear to me, she looked at my sweater and she's like, oh, you have that problem too. Oh, you're like the same level of knitters. And she was so pleased. And I was like, yeah, I never saw myself as like an amazing knitter. I have friends and I know people that are like, oh my gosh. But yeah, no, for me, it's more the creative process. I, I like the design and getting it out there and um, developing the yarn exactly the way I wanted it. But um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not the world's best knitter by a long shot. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh. Star, it has been so wonderful talking to you. My last question for you and my famous last question for everyone is, what is the most rewarding part about being a farmer for you? Oh, geez, that's so hard. Well, I think all the stars that I see, and that was sort I know it's sort of cheesy, but that's where the morning star thing came from is like, I never would have seen so many dark skies if I wasn't farming. And I love the peace and the, just the connectedness of being out there, getting up, getting going. Like, you're not always super fired up to get out in the pouring rain. But once you're out there, you feel so lucky, so fortunate to be spending, you know, to have that experience, you know. And then, and then also, of course, forcing my children forcibly <laughs> into that experience too <laughs> oh that's so good and those are both perfectly good reasons to like being a farmer <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so good so for my listeners who would like to stay in contact with you after the show where can they find you online and um, the best place would be my instagram feed it's um morningstar woolen and Woolen is the English way, W-O-O-L-L-E-N. Um, I'm also, the farm also has a Facebook page, but I'm, I'm far less active there. Very good. And I will link all of those in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. Great. Thank, Thank you, you so much for chatting with me today. It has been so fun talking to you. Oh, you too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can stay connected with me on Instagram at wildrosefarmer. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Plus, share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.